Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to the Fly Past podcast. Uh, my name is Hans. I'm the head of content on Key Aero here with Chris Clifford, editor of Fly Past. Hi, Chris. Good morning. How are you doing? All right. And Jamie Ewan, uh, deputy editor of Fly Past. Hi, Jamie. Morning. How are we all? All right. Good. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Your first, your first appearance on it. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it. I say that. I mean, it's only the second episode. It's like, you know, it's not like, we, it's not like we've been doing this for five years and you're all of a sudden just sort of like um, yeah, we're, uh, we're coming on it. podcast virgins pretty much, aren't we? <laughs> exactly. How's everyone getting on? Okay. Yeah. Looking forward to Christmas. Hopefully we can um, spend some time with family and uh, just make it a bit more human again. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, we sort of, so we started doing this podcast. We've been talking about it for a while actually, hadn't we? But um, yeah, we yeah. decided to take the plunge and, um, bit of a confession i'm going to um share something with everybody um so when we first decided to uh to do it i was thinking we should think of a really kind of like a cool uh quite clever little name for it right so it's going around in my head a little bit and then i was thinking oh we could call it Flycast, right i was thinking well look that's, a, that's a, it's a play on fly past that sounds like and fishing it's a play on podcast. yeah well i'm not into fishing exactly if oh, only someone had told me and um, it's like uh, it's some sort of fly fishing term isn't it yeah yeah it is how, exactly. about, Imagine wing, how about wing talking as opposed to wing walking <laughs> <laughs> I was just like had, had a, a nightmare. Imagine if that if no one had like you know pulled me up on that, and we'd have ended up with all these people subscribing, thinking at last some informed chat on what the right bait to use is, and yeah, they're just going to hear us start a, talking about Spitfire. There'd be a reader called J.R. Hartley asking for a copy of Fly Fishing. Exactly. <laughs> do you remember that? Oh, I do. Yeah, we are. We are, we are all showing our age a little bit there. Oh, but let's, so let's move. Yeah. Swift, let's move speak for yourselves. <laughs> Good to see we've got the uh, the younger demographic represented here, Jamie. Yes, some youth. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Actually, Jamie, you'll be pleased to know that this uh, podcast is available on Spotify. Oh, excellent. You I know. don't know how to use that just. It's, 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 yeah. it's within my technical grasp. <laughs> so it's like something you go to the doctors for to me. That <laughs> I, told one of my, I told one of my kids that, that it was on Spotify and they said, does that mean you're as popular as Lady Gaga? It's like, well, no, no, probably not Possibly up to a billion not, streams no. yet. But <laughs> we're not that, far that's off, what I'm she's sure. thinking when she hears fly casting. She's thinking I'm as popular as those guys. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I'm sure. I'm sure she's. I'm sure she's uh, tuning in. Uh, good morning, Lady Gaga. Quite if right you are. Um, so we talked about um, aviation heroes last time, didn't we? Um, so Jamie, coming to you, um, you must have loads of aviation heroes. Oh yeah, it, the, the names that you could rattle off—it's a, a never-ending list. But at the top of it, at the minute, obviously, is Chuck Yeager, who sadly passed on last week at the age of ninety-seven. And I mean, that name is synonymous throughout aviation. Even people that aren't into aviation know who Chuck Yeager is, and you know, breaking the sound barrier. Yeah, he was the dad, yeah, he really. It's amazing. It's amazing, and and quite—you sort of forget, don't you? Like nineteen forty-seven. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite a long time ago. So you know, can you imagine like doing that in 1947? I mean, 
it's quite it's, astonishing, it's, but I, I think World War Two, obviously, um, you know, being the necessity, being the mother of all invention, you know, they made a lot of advances in a short space of time during the war, and I think that led to it, really, in a way, and that and capturing German scientists, of course. <laughs> But, you know, and, and, and probably sort of, you know, sharpen people's nerves. You know, we weren't scared of anything or no one was scared of anything after, uh, you know, wow. six years of World War Two, were they? I mean, Quite right. you know, yeah, my but, grandparents brought me up and I remember them telling me about, you know, having to sit through bombs going off. I really can't imagine it, to be honest. Go on. Sorry, I, I was just going to say it's, 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 a, it's an amazing thing to think that. In 1903, the Wright brothers flew for the first ever time or the first recorded sort of proper flight. And then, you know, less than, well, how many years? Me and maths is never very good. But, you know, in 1947, we were breaking the sound barrier. It's the, the That's just pioneering stuff. It just kind it of is, um, it is snowballed amazing, from yeah. there, didn't it, really? The, 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 when you look actually at all the aviation records, you know, in that real kind of, you know, certainly from, you know, like you say, from that sort of first flight, and then you really sort of like the like 20s and 30s as well. There was just so many records broken. It's quite amazing to look back, isn't it, and see how, see how fast and how high, you know, we were flying, yeah. you know, having not done it for that long. And I just think that people like Chuck Yeager, who... It's breaking the sound barrier in 1947. I mean, that is that is proper kind of proper nerves of steel. That is, yeah. Well, I, I imagine that he maybe got a little close to it in a Mustang diving down on some German pilots on occasion because <laughs> he was an it's, ace it's, in World War Two. It's, it's when you think about it as well. You know, he was born in West Virginia in 1923 and joined the military as an aircraft mechanic. So he went from being an aircraft mechanic to being an ace to, in a day to then being the right stuff. You know, whenever that phrase in aviation is used, the right stuff, everyone thinks of Chuck Yeager. Oh, you know, you love that film? <laughs> that film is fantastic. And the book by Tom Wolfe as well is just yeah. incredible. But it's like, you know, he, he flew eight missions in uh, World War II flying Mustangs with the uh, 363rd and was shot down, managed to escape... And then came back and fought to fly again in combat, and then went on to shoot down eleven. What was it? Eleven enemy aeroplanes. Yeah, they don't make them like and that anymore, do they? It's no. And some of the stories you hear about. I mean, you know, even sort of his, his World War Two combat stuff. You know, to his test flying days, to even when he was in combat in Vietnam, and then onwards when he was uh, commanding squadrons in Europe. There, there, there's a really, really fascinating story about how he was deploying out with one of his squadrons. And uh, they were floating along over the, I think it was over the Atlantic. And uh, he called up to the guys and said, there's an oil tanker on fire down there. And all the pilots started scanning the horizon and couldn't see anything. And they said, well, there isn't, boss. There's, there's, there's nothing there. <laughs> and as they got closer to it, suddenly on the horizon, they could see this oil tanker on fire. And yeah. when they landed, they checked his cockpit to see if he had any binoculars in there. And he didn't. His eyes Eagle were just eye. that good. Yeah, it's quite well, useful yeah. when you're a test pilot, I think, as well. Proper, proper legend. It, it, one of my favorite, one of my favorite stories about uh, about him as well is when he, um, they, they got him to to uh, to break the sand barrier again, didn't they? On it was the 65th anniversary um, of so what was it October the 14th, wasn't it? Uh, 1947. So for this to, to mark the 65th anniversary, he went back to I think it was Nellis mm. Air Force Base, was so yeah. the, the exact same place, wasn't it? And um, he went up, he went up in an F-15, oh, back I in an F-15 that. at 
the age of 89. It's I like, thought that was hugely I, impressive to do that, I, I, really. I, I'm not sure I would have got in the back of an F-15 when I was 29. <laughs> no. 89 years old and you still, and you didn't, and they did it, they went off at the exact time. He broke the sound barrier again, the exact time he did. That's very cool. Years, so that is, that is cool, isn't it? Yeah. Is yeah, it, yeah. That, test, that pilots is don't seem to, test pilots don't seem to lose it, though. They stay very, very sharp right till the end, I think. And it's I mean, like classic of example mind. of that. Well, classic yeah. example of that would be uh, Eric Winkle Brown. You know, he's yeah, as sharp exactly. as a tack all the way to the end. But as uh, you mentioned about the 65th anniversary of the uh, him breaking the sound barrier, when they'd done the 50th anniversary, they chucked him up in an eagle, and he they, they called it glamorous Glennis as per the the X one that he broke it in. But what made it even more better was that they had an F16 chase plane on the wing with Bob Hoover in it, who had been his chase pilot during the actual uh, flight on October 14th, 1947. Which yeah, is just it's fascinating. Got a nice, nice when you can do things like that to recreate it. <laughs> but is it, a lot of people don't realise that after all these test flying and stuff, Chuck Yeager was an influential part in aviation. You know, he he led squadrons into Vietnam. Uh, he he kept training squadrons going, but he was also in, involved in the Rogers Commission for the Challenger explosion. I didn't know that. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, he, he he was he was taken on. He was uh, allocated to it by the president of the United States to be involved in the commission and the investigation. Hmm. It's another Such analyst mind, isn't it, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's so incredible many stories in, in, in that sort of era of flight that mm. are related in some way to Chuck Yeager. You know, it's, it's named like Albert Boyd, Bob Hoover, Jack Ridley, Jackie Cochran, even um, uh, there was a South Korean pilot, sorry, North Korean pilot that defected in a MiG uh, and a MiG-15. And it was Chuck Yeager that then flew the evaluation flights of that. You know, names yeah. like Slick Goodlin as well. If it wasn't for the fact that uh, Slick had asked for $150,000 to break the sound barrier, you know, Chuck Yeager wouldn't have had a look in. It's, mm-hmm. it's just, there's so many facets of uh, aviation that are related yeah, to Chuck Yeager. Yeah. I think the one that sticks out for me is when he took up the, uh, the F-104 to try and I think it was break the altitude record. And um, he, basically, the air was so thin, he lost control and it started spinning and he just couldn't get it back. So he ended up ejecting. But the the seat rocket motor ended up um, colliding with his helmet and it set his helmet on fire and he got quite badly burned. And he had to go to hospital, obviously, for this. And um, I remember reading in his book at some stage that... Uh, the doctors had to keep peeling off the scabs from his face to prevent him being scarred. And he said, it's the most painful thing he's ever endured. I cannot imagine what that must've been like, but he got through it. It's, yeah, it's absolutely, um, he was an incredible, incredible man. There is a, in his book, um, or the sort of ghosted autobiography by Leo Janus, um, it does. There's that fascinating bit where him and Bud Anderson went off to do their last flight of World War, well, World War Two together. And uh, when they came back, there'd been the biggest dogfight ever, and the squadron had multiple, multiple claims. And they sort of said to Chuck and you know, but you know, Bob, I'm sorry, Bud, um, what have you been up to and stuff? And it was like nothing much. And they'd actually spent most of their flight just jollying around the area. Then they jettisoned their um, fuel tanks and then tried to set them on fire. They just kept continue <laughs> shooting do. at them to try and set them on fire. <laughs> so they missed the biggest skirmish of all time. Wholehearted the, the, pilot the, fun. That's it. <laughs> um, Chris, who have you got? Who have you got down? Joe, I've got an interesting one, and uh, this came about. Um, I can't remember how 
I got into this subject, but who I'm going to choose today is a woman called Jacqueline Oriol. Uh, she was a French test pilot and probably a really unlikely one as well. Um, she, when she was very young, she was into art and interior design, and I think she went to study in Paris um, in those disciplines. Um, but the fascinating thing is she got married at the very tender age of 20, I think it was, and she married Paul Oriol, who was the son of the socialist leader in France, Vincent Oriol. Um, now, this really has the makings of a good film because her father-in-law was um, outspoken against the, the puppet Vichy government you know, during the war. Uh, so they all had to go into hiding and take a few names and dodge the Gestapo. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. Um, I should say at this point that um, I've already cast this film in my head because I'm a bit of a closet <laughs> film director. This is a little trait I have. And I think that um, Kate Blanchett would make a very good Jacqueline Oriole. But yeah, that's just me. Um, Kate Blanchett, so, yeah. So, like a sort of a, like a frosty sort of slightly, you know slightly slightly austere yeah okay, I'm with you I get I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. I think she did very well, but you need other actress, (laughs) and I'll explain why in a while. Um, So after the the studying, she eventually um, got into flying through her connections, um, and she took some lessons, and uh, she eventually joined another pilot on a test flight of a new amphibious aircraft, Um, but sadly it crashed. And in the accident, Jacqueline's face was very, very badly injured. I mean, we're talking bones completely shattered. She'd lost her face, essentially. So she spent months in hospital and many, many surgeries to rebuild her face. Um, But with the odd result that she came out looking like somebody completely different. Uh, She still had film-style good looks, but it just looked like another person. So it's really kind of odd. You know, hence that we'd need two actresses in the film to portray. So who's going to, so who's going to, who's going to, who's going to be her in the second half of the film? Then that's just ah, uh, well, no, Kate Blanchett would be the second. The first, I'm still mulling it over, but I'll get uh, there. Believe me, we'll, we'll come, we'll come back to you on another episode. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, quite right. Um, but anyway, uh, she had all these surgeries to rebuild her face, and uh, you know, a bit like Steve Austin, you know, we rebuilt her. Um, but when she was fit and healthy, she got back to flying because she just found that she loved it, um, and. And uh, she took more lessons again and she performed her first public display. I think it was an air meeting in 1949. Um, and this really gave her a confidence boost to, to just fly more and more. Um, she got to know various successful pilots and her flying instructor thought her so good that he suggested she should make an attempt on the, the women's closed circuit speed record. Um, and at the time, that was held by Jacqueline Cochran, another Jackie uh, from the US. Um, but the thing was, Cochran set her record in a piston uh, engine aeroplane, but Oriol was going to get to do it in a de Havilland vampire jet. So she had a little bit of an advantage there, even though it was an early one. Um, but she ended up beating Cochran's record of 410 miles an hour because she got to 510, I think it was, something like that. Um but then afterwards, it was basically a tug of war between these two Jackies to, to see who could bust each other's records. And they just kept on doing it. It's fascinating. What is it about the name Jackie and aviation? I don't know. There are a few. Yeah, I think it seems to have that sort of resonance throughout it. But um, yeah, they, they kept breaking each other's records. And Jacqueline Oriol got to do it in one of my, well, it's probably my second favorite aircraft of all time. And that's the Mirage. Uh, she was in a Mirage 3R and... Uh, and uh, took it to a very, very high speed. Uh, but what impresses me most is that she um, persevered to become a test pilot. You know, she found all this world of aviation fascinating and she got to know some of these uh, test pilots and thought, you know what, I can do this and I really want to do it. And she did uh, in a world that was hugely male dominated. I think it was fantastic. 
Yeah, incredible. How many records did she set in the end? God, do you know what? I, I think I it must have been it about was... five or six, I think, possibly more. But um, yeah, she, she knew what she was doing. It was fantastic. And the way she battled with Cochrane as well, it's uh, it's the stuff of films. It really is. It will make a great movie. Well, it, it, it will with the director as Cliff, Chris Clifford. There you go. Obviously. I'm going to retrain in the directing <laughs> world. Yeah. Not for the next 10 years. Am I right in thinking that uh, Jackie uh, Oriel, she she was awarded the Harmon Trophy, wasn't she? Uh, I think she was, yeah, as was Jackie Cochran. Yeah, they just kept stealing it each year, potentially. Um, I just find the whole thing fascinating that, you know, women at that time, they were supposed to be tied to the kitchen stove. And yet you've got some that were so tenacious and knew what they wanted and they went out and did it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, incredible, incredible. Let me let me actually then take take you guys back a little bit um, and just talk about your first sort of historic aviation experience. I mean, obviously, oh, Chris, I imagine you probably sort of had uh, like Spitfires and Hurricanes like in your cot. You know, obviously, <laughs> I think that's what people would expect as the editor of Fly Spice. But we'll come to you in a minute, J- Jamie. What, what, what's the first your first memory of kind of going out and seeing you know historic aircraft and kind of really getting a bug? For so yeah, I've, I've been thinking about my sort of earliest historic aviation memory quite a lot recently, especially in my role at Flypasses. You know, when, when when we were allowed in the office to sit around, we used to sit and talk about it. I remember this, and I remember that. And uh, the the one that suddenly sprung out at me recently was uh, being up at Cumbernauld Airport in Scotland, just outside Glasgow. And my uh, dad was a member there, and I just remember sitting in the terminal building, and this blue and yellow biplane appearing and zooming past the window and it had this horrendous sounding growling engine and as it, a sort of four or five year old kid this, this was it was it was fascinating but yet scary this massive brute of a machine and it actually turned out to be a, a Boeing Stearman and uh, it flew up and down the airfield and, and doing everything like that and I just remember being fascinated by it and when I, I was stood next to it after it had landed, I just remember this machine being huge compared to me. Just sat there, no cowl on the engine, just showing a glistening silver engine. And uh, it just, yeah, there was that. And then not long after that, I do remember that a couple of L-29 Delphins, some old Soviet uh, training jets, arriving at Cumbernauld to go elsewhere. I just remember standing on the hill next to the airfield and looking down at them and seeing these jets sat there. And at that time, they weren't that old so th- th- that's probably my earliest one at the minute yeah steerman's a very pretty airplane i do like those um oh my first aviation experience um well funny you mentioned spitfires in cots um i didn't have a spitfire <laughs> that was just my- a joke <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you never know um i didn't have a spitfire in my cot but i do remember from a very young age my grandmother t- telling me about her exploits because she was one of the fen tigers and they were civilian aircraft mechanics um repairing military airplanes and she was uh, she worked at a little maintenance unit called horsey toll just outside of peterborough where i'm from and um she, she used to tell me stories. Uh, but my first physical um, experience with an aircraft was um, when my mother was working at RAF Alconbury at the time in the enlisted men's club. And this would have been 1972. So I would have been approaching four years old, three and a half maybe. Um, and she took me to the air show uh, along with my godmother, Pat. And 
obviously I'd never been to an air show before, but I just remember seeing lots of crowds looking up at people until we got to the actual crowd line. And I could just see this, what looked like a gray road, you know, I didn't know what it was. Um, and then all of a sudden from whichever end it was, the right, I think, this outrageous roar kicked off. And these two RF4C Recce Phantom 2s just blasted down the runway and it scared the hell out of me. And I ran and ran and ran back through the crowd. And of course, my mother and Pat had to um, to, to come and get me because there were thousands of people there. But they brought me back shaking and quivering. But actually, when I saw these things flying, I was just mesmerized. And I've had a love affair with the F4 Phantom ever since. It's still my all-time favorite. I absolutely love it. It's amazing, actually. I was um, at the RAF Museum a couple of months ago doing something. You know, when you walk past things like, you know, phantoms or, you know, lightnings, you just yep. you never sort of, you know, fails to amaze me just how massive they are. Like, they are big. Yeah. Even though they're classed as fighters and even though you're an adult, you know, when you're standing next to them, they are big machines. And I think, you know, these guys and now girls obviously um, have massive kudos to them for getting in these things and throwing themselves about the sky. It's tremendous. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. I remember going to um, the Big and Hill Air Show. I remember it quite mm-hmm. vividly. 1986 it was. Yep. I was 11. So we used to kind of live you know, down that way. So it wasn't actually sort of, um, that far. But I suppose looking back, you kind of think it was this was like pre-internet. So you didn't have everything sort of plastered around. So you had to kind of yep. you know, find out about these things in like, you know, you know, a magazine or like, you know, mm-hmm. something that there was like a little poster if you like went in, you know, if your parents took you into town and stuff. It was the first time that I'd actually sort of seen some of this stuff, you know, in the flesh. You know, your first kind of, well, my first sort of real kind of, you know, introduction into, you know, aeroplanes was like airfix models, you know, like building things like, oh, you know, Spitfires yeah. and stuff. And that's where, you know, like when you're a kind of a kid, you're really obsessed with all the contours of like the, the wings. Yeah. And that's when you kind of start to really kind of get familiar with the the, the shape of this stuff, isn't it? And, mm-hmm. um, and then seeing all this, seeing all this stuff, I didn't realize at the time. Uh, 11 that it was actually well, I subsequently found out I was looking at Big and, Air, Big and Hill Air Show 1986 and it was actually the 50th anniversary that year of the first flight of the the Spitfire and that, I didn't realise ah, why there were right. loads of Spitfires there I was thinking oh this is quite cool <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise they pre-planned it, it. Um, but you know just amazing that is the first time you kind of you, you're sort of seeing that stuff um, it's just it's just incredible mm. isn't it and it does it oh, does it is, completely yeah. stay with you doesn't it Mm, does indeed. I, I, I think it's you know you, you talk about the size of these aeroplanes and the shapes of them and stuff and i think that all adds to that boy's own dream you know mm, it's I, it's there's always a moment no, no matter what aeroplane it is you know be it a, a cessna 150 a spitfire and an f-15 no matter what the aeroplane is you can look at it and you can just see that boy's own dream mm, you know thinking i could do this it's funny, you know, one thing that really sticks with me is the smell. And I know that sounds odd, but not long after um, my phantom experience that scared the bejesus out of me, um, I remember my grandparents taking me to a country show in Peterborough at the, the showground, and um, the RAF recruiters were there, and they had a Canberra cockpit. Now, at the time, I would have been about maybe five, and I, I, I didn't know what it was, but you could go in it. And I got in the... Um, you know, the navigator station, it was a bomber nose Canberra. And um, 
looking at all these switches and dials, but it was the smell that stuck with me. You know, what I now know was the fuel, the oil, the, the paint, you know, all the, the engineering smells that, you know, have that particular note to them. And um, again, you, you never forget it. And then when, for after a long time and you smell it again and it takes you back to what you did before, you know, and because I, I remember... Not long after that, because my mother worked at Alconbury, I was sitting in um, RF4Cs and F5s. You know, I get a little treat for a day going to visit a squadron. Uh, it was just incredible. And it has such an it leaves such an impression on you, you know, when you're uh, of that young age. It's, it's funny you mentioned about a Canberra nose. I, I had the bizarre thing recently where I found a Canberra nose that my granddad had actually flown on 249 squadron. Oh, I remember you telling me about this, that. That's incredibly cool. That is cool. I'd, yeah. I'd sat in this cockpit many times before, and it was only when I was going through these logbooks that I recognised the serial number and thought, "Wow!" To, to know that my granddad had flown that aeroplane sort of fifty years before, mm-hmm. but it's that smell. And one of the moments I was kind of sat there, and it, it, was, it was quite surreal actually. I think people realised it was I was having a bit of a, a moment, if you will, and they kind mm-hmm. of just left me to it. But it was that smell, and it occurred to me: I wonder if it smelled like that when my grandfather was flying it. If yeah, you know, if, 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 he, do, if he yeah. maybe climbed into it, and it, if that was that that new Canberra smell, if you will, yeah, it probably whiffed but a bit of brill cream as well. Oh, more than likely, <laughs> knowing what my granddad was like, yeah, he, he was very slick back. Yeah, they didn't get it's, the name uh, the brill cream boys for nothing, did they? No, so. no, it's uh, but it's, it's stuff like that. It's like even uh, the Lightning Preservation Group. I've done some stuff with them, and climbing into the Lightnings just to have a, a sit in the cockpit and a chat and whatnot. You climb in, mm-hmm. and there is this there's this smell, and I don't think you can. There's no name for it, and until you no. smell it. I don't think people understand what that smell is. No, it's odor aeroplane. I think that's the odor best way. <laughs> the, 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 like yeah. the, the, the lightning is 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 one that's just so fascinating. I mean, that is just one that I can just stand in front of for ages, and it's just so massive. It is. Oh, yeah. it, it, it's, it's just it's it's two two massive engines with a bit of tin wrapped around it, basically. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it basically front. is. But then you are kind of looking up at the cockpit, and it, it looks like the cockpit's about four stories high. It, it just yeah, looks like yeah. you you know you need to get a lift up to it. It doesn't look like there's be a ladder kind of like long enough. It's just it, that's the thing I think about the, the some of these kind of real iconic aircraft. I, I find I could just sort mm. of like stand in front of them for like. Yeah. hours you know like looking yeah. at a map and just getting lost it's, and oh, just yeah yeah but you know you've got to think about that we poor armorers like i was you know um a hunter it's relatively easy to change an ejection seat but then when you look at a lightning or a phantom they is big isn't it <laughs> <laughs> they are really big airplanes yeah and I, you, I, you, it's, it's just instantly harder because you're so much higher to you know to get these things changed yeah i think, I think it's that that, yeah. that whole size thing as well it's you you, you you end up standing there and no matter how many times you see an aeroplane, you know, and I think the classic example would be, you know, in this case, the, the lightning or a Spitfire, you may have seen that aeroplane multiple times before, but you will stand there and you will just take it all in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the emotions that run through your your head and the thoughts that run through your head is just something else. You sort of think guys actually went up and flew these, you know, guys that are younger than we are now and yeah. younger than I am. Yeah. Um, to defend stuff that you know came out of school got the qualifications went off to do it mm. and uh, it's you know it, it really makes you glad that people do preserve them and give you a chance to actually see them and do stuff yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny when you kind of see, you know, like at the RAF Museum and plenty of places, they've got like things like Eurofighters and you know stuff like this. Some of the more modern things. I've never I've never actually seen an F thirty five, but Eurofighter, I, I haven't checked the sort of the specs, but it just somehow looks a lot smaller than something like the Lightning. It just I doesn't seem what, as, it, as it, imposing. It's it a big is. brute. 
It's a yeah. big brute, and it took me surprise, by surprise when I first saw one. But uh, back in the summer, we had one doing some aerobatics over our house in rural Lincolnshire, and boy, are they noisy. But they oh, are yeah. much bigger than you would expect. Really? Yeah, because they've got a lot of them at um, Coningsby, haven't they? Yeah, um, yeah. So Coningsby has, um, what have they got there at the minute? Um, 29 Squadron, 11, 12, 41, 3. Uh, so they've got a, a, a lot. Having a day, a day trip to Coningsby is fantastic. You just sit there and you, they're just going round and round and round. Yeah, no, it is, it, is, um, it is amazing. Well, look... I mean, I think that's pretty much it for uh, for episode two. Look, we could sort of like you know, we could sort of go on for, uh, for forever. I think there'll probably be some sort of like you know Christmas special next year that's about five and a half hours long. That'll be really for the hardcore. Yeah. yeah. Do, do we wear Christmas jumpers and sit in rocking chairs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I'm doing now. <laughs> uh, well, look, thank you very much for your uh, for your time, guys. Jamie, how was the, how was your first um, how was your first fly past podcast? It was really, really good. Slightly nervous. I'm not going to lie. It's uh, all this technology kind of gets to me sometimes. But no, it was really good to take part and uh, hear some of your guys' experiences. Well, look, we'll, um, we will uh, be back again uh, next week. So uh, thanks very much for uh, listening. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Flypass podcast at key.aero or listen to it, as mentioned, on Spotify. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.